There are a number of Christmas traditions that I enjoy, even though they don't really have anything to do with Christmas per se, at least not with the birth of Jesus Christ. Things like Christmas cookies, Christmas trees, and yes, Christmas movie classics. You know the regular list. It's, uh, it's a Wonderful Life, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, A Christmas Story, these heartwarming tales that we see every year. And in the last decade or so, there's one that's been topping the ranks of these holiday specials called Elf. An elf is a story about an elf named Buddy who lives at the North Pole where elves live. And Buddy finds that he doesn't really fit in very well at the North Pole. You see, he's a little bit bigger than all the other elves. His hands are a little too big to, to make the toys in Santa's workshop. The furniture at the North Pole seems a little too small for him. And he realizes that actually the reason he doesn't fit in is because he's not an elf at all. He's adopted by, a fa- by elves. He's a human being. And he finds out that he has a biological father that lives far away, that never knew that he'd been born at all. And so he thought, maybe if I can find my biological father, if I can find that place where other humans live, maybe then I'll find a place where I belong. So he starts at the North Pole and he journeys far away through the candy cane forest until he reaches the land of New York. And he finds that, well, he doesn't fit very well in New York either. And it's not just because he's wearing yellow tights and a green jacket and an elf hat. No, New York is a very different place. The people are very brusque. No one has any Christmas spirit whatsoever. There's no Christmas cheer. And then he finds his family. He finds his father, and he finds out that his father isn't particularly interested in getting to know him. He sees him as something of an inconvenience for having showed up at the doorstep. And he realizes that he doesn't belong at the North Pole And he doesn't belong in New York either. It's a silly story. I'm not going to tell you how it ends. But it touches on this profound experience that we share as human beings. This desire for a kind of deep belonging. The kind of belonging that nobody can take away from us. That's not based on something that we do, but that's just a part of who we are. For some of us, you may think of family as that kind of picture of belonging. And it's true. In its ideal form, family is maybe the closest thing the human experience has to that kind of deep belonging. But if we're honest, most of us would probably have to say that family is often a little more complicated than that, right? Some of you may not have a relationship with your family that's very close. Maybe you haven't heard from them in years. They live far away. Others of you, see those people who don't have much of a relationship with your family and they're jealous, right? I mean, if there's so much bickering and arguing in your family and you bring them together in the holidays and it's so, it's so anxiety-inducing and everybody's making jokes at somebody else's expense and it's a place where you have to prove yourself instead of a place where you belong. And others of us have that deep sense of belonging in our families. You may have parents who love you who you also love, siblings that love one another, and it's really this beautiful picture. But then something might come along, a disease that shakes the foundation of your family to the core. Maybe it's a divorce. You feel like your heart is being torn in two, and that deep sense of belonging that you had is just slipping away through the cracks. And all of us, at one point or another, will encounter the death of a loved one. 
And this sense of belonging that we had that seemed so certain ends up feeling so fragile. Brothers and sisters, we were made to desire to belong. In the same way that we're made to get our energy from food, and when we don't have food, we feel hungry, God designed us to belong somewhere. An early Christian writer, St. Augustine, put it this way. He said in a prayer to God, You made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you about the miracle of Christmas. Because of Christmas, because the Son of God, the passage that we read from John said that Jesus, the Word, was God. Because God became flesh and joined our human family, joined himself to humanity, it's finally possible for us to be in an eternal family, in the family of God. Take a look with me at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. It says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Another Christian writer, early, early in the church, put it this way, The Son of God became the Son of Man so that men might become sons of God. That's a remarkable statement. But to really understand it, we need to understand what Paul means by son. And here's what he doesn't mean. And this might have been bothering you. He doesn't mean male offspring. That's what it means in English, right? If you you want to say men and women, you say sons and daughters. But he says son. Paul's not talking to a men's Bible study in Galatia. Right? He's talking to a group of men and women, slave people, free people, Jews and Gentiles. But that word son meant something to Paul. And I asked one of my theology professors, I said, how would you explain what Paul means by son in this passage? And she thought for a moment. And then with the wisdom that can only be gained from years of studying theology, she said, well, it's like Downton Abbey. And I said, I'm sorry? for I had not seen Downton Abbey. And she said, well, the whole TV series is predicated on this idea uh, that there's this family uh, with only daughters, and daughters in that time and place couldn't inherit the estate. And Paul is writing a context where it was really an exception for daughters to have a share in their family's estate. But what Paul is saying to this group of diverse people, no matter who you are, if you're a man or a woman, if you're a Jew or a Gentile, whatever your social economic class, you have the opportunity to have the right of a son. Something that's only usually reserved for sons in that culture. You have that place in the family of God. And as a son, one thing that's part of being a son is that you are an heir of God. You share in everything that is God's. So if God has eternal life, we share in that eternal life. And we have the promise of life forever. God will have victory over sin and death. We share in that victory over sin and death. God will reign forever. And the Bible says that we will reign together with Christ forever. That is the inheritance we have as sons and daughters. And I could preach a whole sermon on that. In fact, that was the original sermon I was going to preach. 
And then the night that I was going to finalize it, I thought, I need to talk about something else. Because there's a problem that we have sometimes. And that is that even though we see the words of Scripture that talk about the promise of being a son or daughter of God, we don't feel like we're sons and daughters of God. Even though we've put our faith in Jesus Christ and we're committed to following him, we feel like something is off. And I notice that for me, this most often happens when I start comparing myself with people around me. Some of you may have had the experience of coming to church and looking around at all the other people in the rows around you and thinking, oh boy, (laughs) I don't belong here. You look at that family with all their kids nicely sitting in a row, listening to the sermon, and you think, I'm not that kind of father. I'm not that kind of mother. You see that person over there who's crossing themselves at the right time and knows all the words to the liturgy, and you think, why am I even here? I'm not religious enough to be here. For me, it usually happens when I have the standard that I set for myself, and I expect that as a son of God, I'm going to make a certain amount of spiritual progress at a certain pace. And I look at my life and I say, if I'm really a son of God, why do I still have this temptation? Why did I just say that? That was really hurtful. Am I really a son of God? Do I really belong in the family of God? And what happens, if you, if you nurture that thought too much, what happens is you can get caught in this trap of always looking for that next spiritual experience that's going to really assure you that you're a child of God. You're going to, you're going to think, oh, if I just go forward for that next altar call... If I just master this one discipline, then I'll really belong. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't want you to have doubt about where you stand with him. If you trust in Jesus Christ, he doesn't want you to be confused about where you are in relation to his family. And he inspired the Apostle Paul with his authority to write a letter to the Galatians to reassure them. And we have here some assurances from God that we belong in the family of God. The first way we're going to see that God assures us of our belonging is through the promise of his word. Take a look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 26. It says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And here's the big promise. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, if you're committed to following him, Paul's word to the Galatians and to you is, you are all sons of God through that faith. See, the problem in the region of Galatia, the reason why Paul was writing this letter is because the Galatians, much like perhaps some of us, were experiencing a kind of belonging crisis, an identity crisis. What had happened was, they didn't grow up worshipping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, they, they, they had grown up worshipping other gods, other idols, but they had left behind their old life, their idolatrous practices, and they had cast their lot in with Jesus. They had decided to commit their life to Jesus, and they were trusting fully in him. They joined his community, and they looked around, and they realized, oh boy, I don't think I belong here. You see, a lot of the early Christians, most of the early Christians actually, uh, were from a Jewish background. 
And they had grown up worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had these beautiful traditions. They had the law of Moses that taught them uh, about the character of God and so forth. And, and they saw all of this and they said, wow, I need to be more like that. And some of these Christians, not, not all of them, but, but some of them who we call Judaizers, uh, they, they, they came to these non-Jews and they said, well, here's the, here's the problem. You know, you, you're trusting in Jesus. That's a great start. He's a great man, a great teacher, um, the, the perfect Jew, really. And if you want to really belong in the family of God, what you need to do is be more Jewish. That, that's what you need to do. You need to follow the law of Moses. And this gets Paul really angry. Now, Paul's Jewish, and he's proud of it. All of the apostles are Jewish. But he gets really angry because they're mischaracterizing what it means to be part of the family of God. The kind of belonging that they're advocating is the kind of belonging that, that you find in a high school cafeteria, right? Where, where maybe you, uh, if, if you hang out with the right people and you wear, and, and this isn't everyone's experience, I'm sure, but if you hang out with the right people, you wear the right clothing, you don't do anything embarrassing or humiliating, you have a place to belong, you have a, this group of friends. But the moment you mess up, the moment your mom has to come running out of the house with a sack lunch and give you a kiss before you get on the bus, next thing you know, you're sitting by yourself in the bathroom stall eating alone. That's the kind of belonging that they were advocating, something based on something that they were not, not based on something that they were in Jesus Christ. You see, they forgot why it was that God's people were God's people to begin with. They weren't God's people. The Jews weren't God's people because they obeyed the law. They were God's people before that. It started back here with Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham that he would make him a great nation and that he would send him a descendant through whom all the people of the world would be blessed. And Abraham believed that promise. This is what's crazy. That promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one who came and blessed all the people of the earth. Because Abraham believed in Jesus, or believed in that promise, he actually believed in Jesus, even though he didn't know who Jesus was. So even Abraham was saved, was part of God's family through faith in Jesus Christ. Here on the other side, we have these Gentiles who left their life behind them, who put their faith in Jesus Christ. They were part of the family of God for the same reason. So what about the law? Well, Paul describes the law as kind of a babysitter, right? The law was given to God's people to help them along the way, to help reveal the character of God, to help them understand their need for a Messiah so that when the promise was finally revealed in Jesus Christ, they would be ready to believe. And it's like they were trying to tell the Gentiles that they had to listen to their old babysitter. And that's not what God had in mind. God's promise to the Galatians is his promise to you as well. When you have doubts about your faith place in the family of God, I want to ask you, do you trust in Jesus? Are you committed to following him as Lord? If so, this promise is for you. It's in God's word, and God does not lie. And if that's the only way that God told us that we belong in his family, that would be really great. That would be a rich promise, but that's not all he does. He gives us even more than that. You see, the second way that God assures us that we belong to him is through the sign of our baptism. 
Look at verse, chapter 3, verse 27 with me. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. God made us. He knows what we're like. He knows that we are physical creatures who live in space and time. He knows that we engage the world through our senses. And he likes to engage us through that world. If any of you have ever had a loved one who lives far away or has been in a long-distance relationship or something like that, you know how great it is to receive a letter or an email from someone that you love telling you what's going on in their life, how much they love you and miss you, and so on. But it's a different experience entirely when they come back and give you a hug, a tangible hug that you can literally hold on to. You can think of baptism as God's hug for us. This is the way God likes to work. He seals his promises with visible signs. He promised that he would never flood the world again, and he sent a rainbow as a sign of that promise. He promised that great promise to Abraham, and he gave him the sign of circumcision. And he promises to us the promise of the adoption as sons and daughters, and he seals it with our baptism. Martin Luther and John Calvin, two of the reformers, like to talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper as promises with signs attached to them, like tangible promises of God. Now, the early baptismal practice was when people would go down to be baptized, they would, as they were going down into the water, they would take off their old garments, their old clothing, and they would go down into the water. And then when they came out, out of the water, they were given a new white robe. And what this symbolized was what Paul calls here in verse 27, putting on Christ. Now, we all know that clothing helps us identify ourselves in the world, right? A police officer. We recognize a police officer as an agent of the law because of the police uniform. The, the priests and deacons wear certain vestments that identify their office in the church. A person's clothing can tell you about their gender, about their culture, about their socioeconomic class, and so on. And so when we talk about putting on Christ, as if putting on a garment, what we're saying is that the way we are identifying ourselves in the world is as people who belong to Jesus Christ. It's not that we lose our old identity. I don't want you to mistake this. Verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is not saying that you cease to be male or female. That's just anatomically false. Okay? What he's saying is that the core of our identity, the place where we experience deep belonging, isn't based on those things anymore. I'm no longer thinking, what does it mean to be a Christian in light of the fact that I'm a white male who lives in the Wheaton area? No, it gets turned on its head. I say, in light of the fact that I'm a follower of Jesus, in light of the fact that that is the core basis of my identity, how do I live out my life as a white male in the Wheaton area? Do you understand how that, how that changes? And baptism is the sign of the shift. It's the way that God seals that promise of that identity shift to us. And that's the reason why we bring our children to the font at baptisms. The power of remembering our baptism is that it reminds us of the objective work that God has done in our lives. And you know, some of our children were too young to remember that baptism and so we want them to see it and we want them to know yes this promise is for you too God has spoken this promise to you in your baptism now a promise has to be believed right 
It's possible for somebody to reject God, to run far away from home, to decide that they don't want that to be their family. But God promises, in that promise, when a person is baptized, we say, you are sealed as Christ's own forever. It's like God saying, I'm going to leave the light on for you. If you run away from home, you can always come back. That is the deep kind of belonging that we find in Jesus Christ. And our baptism is a reminder of that to us. There's a third way that we see. though Those two ways are glorious, but there's a third way that is more glorious still, that God assures us that we belong to him. And that is through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's this beautiful Trinitarian image of the whole Trinity inviting us into the life of God. God sending the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. That word Abba is what a Jewish child would have called their father. It's not really as childish as daddy because an adult could also call their father Abba. But it conveys a relationship, intimacy, like a a blend of intimacy and respect all rolled into one. It's this relational word. And the Spirit is the one who enables us to recognize that God is our Father. I very recently became the father of my own child, Evelyn, and I love holding her. She's four months old now, and I love telling her that I love her, that I'll always be there for her. I love giving her little hugs. But I long for the day when she finally recognizes who I am and she is able to say, Dada, or Papa, or however it is that she says it. Then that will be so glorious. And that's what the Holy Spirit enables us to do with God. The Holy Spirit enables us to recognize who God is, to recognize that He is our Father. You see, really, this third way that God reassures us is not a distinct way from the promise of God's word or from the promise in our baptism. Actually, it's the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes and opens our hearts to receive God's promise. The only reason our baptism means anything to us is because it's a sign through which God seals what the Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts. What a gift this is that God put inside of us what we need to respond to him, to call him Father. Now, I don't want you to be confused when I talk about our hearts and, God, and, and the call of our hearts. I don't mean emotions, necessarily. Sometimes the Holy Spirit does work through our, our emotions. That can be very powerful. I've experienced that kind of deep joy of being part of God's family that comes from the Holy Spirit. But sometimes our emotions can be deceptive. Sometimes that, that inner working of the Holy Spirit isn't so much through emotions. Maybe it's, it's through conviction. Maybe we've been walking far from God. We've left behind the faith that we once knew. Maybe you're in this situation where you've been away from the church for so long that it just doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like you ever could belong there again. But you have this sense in your heart that maybe you could belong again. Maybe that could be your home. You kind of want God to be your father. You want to be able to call him Abba. That 
stirring is the Holy Spirit in your heart. It may be a sense of assurance that comes from reading the Bible. It may be a call to a remembrance of your baptism. It could be any of these ways, but the Holy Spirit does that work in us. Some of you struggle with this because of your circumstances. There might be someone here today who feels like the world has kind of caved in around you. And, and, and you've been crying out for God. You've said, Father, Abba, why have you forsaken me? Is it possible that the only reason you can go- call God Father at all and mean it is because you have the Holy Spirit in your heart? I think so. Could it be that you really are a part of his family and he really does love you and you can't see the end right now, but he's put that cry in your heart, that desire for his salvation? Do not despair. You are a son, you are a daughter of God if you trust in Jesus Christ. Now what do you suppose would happen if we really believed this, if we took this into our hearts? I think you would find it to be a great relief. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 7. It says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I think some of us are caught in this slavery of performance where we've set the standard for ourselves and we're trying so hard to reach that impossible standard. And we're so down on ourselves and we say, ah, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm a terrible Christian. I don't really belong here. I'm, I'm this. I'm awful. Do you, know what, do you know what that does to the people around you? It draws them into your mess. I'm telling you this from experience. When we set those standards for ourselves and we, when we set these, these goals that, that will really make us feel like we belong, what we're saying to the people around us is that God's finished work through Jesus Christ is not enough. How would it change the way you live if you accepted that truth that you belong to Jesus Christ, not because of what you've done, but because of what he has done? How would it help you to love the people around you better, to encourage the faint-hearted, instead of telling them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and look like a better Christian? Brothers and sisters, this could transform the way this next year looks for you. Some of you have already started thinking about what your New Year's resolution will be. Let me give you an alternative challenge. Let's throw it out there. What if instead of making that list of the way that you're going to improve yourself, which you are either going to fail miserably at and disappoint yourself, or you're going to succeed gloriously at and hang it over everybody else's head, what if instead of striving for that kind of belonging, you spent some time journaling and reflecting on what it means to be part of the family of God. To truly be accepted apart from anything that you have done. And then you lived out of that freedom. You cared for the poor because God cares for the poor and you have a share in his mission. You loved your neighbor because God loves them. Not because you feel like it's what you're supposed to do to belong. Now, some of you may have been listening to the sermon and you're thinking, you know, I, I don't really think I ever have belonged to the family of God. I know, I know, I hear what you're saying. I haven't trusted in Jesus Christ. I don't have that sign of baptism to look back to. But maybe you feel like you kind of want to. You kind of wish that were true about you. You wish you had a place where you belonged. It might seem irrational 
I want to encourage you, don't try to over-rationalize it. Let yourself have that experience. Let yourself think about that. Maybe if you need to pray with somebody, uh, we, we've got prayer ministers during communion that line up on the sides. You can just tell them, hey, this is what's going on. I need to talk to somebody about it. But my prayer for all of us this year and this Christmas season is that the cry of our hearts will be ever, Abba, Father. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.